Hi, this is Mark Bouchard's guest hosting the Nocilla Cast, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, July 24th, 2022, and this is show number 898. Alison and Steve are having a great time in Iceland. Uh, I can attest to this, having seen the photographic evidence. And I'm starting into some much-needed annual leave, so how could I better spend my Sunday than with the good Nocilla Castaway community? So, here I am, folks. Um, My only concern is I have some very big shoes to fill. Alistair did an amazing job guest hosting last week. In fact, he did such an amazing job preparing for it that he actually had two extra segments for me to use this week. So, thank you very much for those, Alistair. We'll actually kick off the show with a segment from Alistair explaining why he loves photography. Then I'm going to pop back in again to uh, update you on some of my more recent podcast discoveries that I want to recommend to you. And then I'm going to hand over again to Alistair for some tiny tips, uh, this time all about the control center in macOS. Um, I always think of control center as an iOS thing, but of course it has come to the Mac with recent versions of macOS and, uh, well, it can do cool stuff. So Alistair will tell us all about that. And then finally, we get back to the bit I always dread, a security bits without Alison. So uh, be interesting to see how that goes. Anyway, without further ado, let's get stuck in. I've been an enthusiast photographer since December 1986. Mum, Dad, my brother and I were on our way to the UK for a holiday when it happened in a camera shop in Lucky Plaza on Singapore's Orchard Road. Lest you think I was buying, I wasn't. My brother was, and as he was choosing his new Nikon, he thrust his old Casina CS1 SLR with 70-210mm Sigma lens at me. I was now the proud owner of my first camera. In true Grandfather's Axe fashion, I still have the same camera today, though I have replaced the body five times and the lens uh, a few more times than that. In the film era, which was 1986-2006 to for me, I was happy if any photo turned out and was very occasionally excited by a particularly good shot. When the digital era dawned for me in 2004 with a Fuji S3000 3-megapixel compact camera, not much changed except I started taking more photos. There was still very little that happened between taking the shot and the final result. I didn't even fix off-level horizons. When I got my first DSLR, it just took better photos, still without me doing much at all. Eventually, I was convinced to explore raw photography, and things got more interesting as there was a lot more leeway to make photos look good. Looking back at published photos, I seem still to have done very little to them apart from fixing exposure and maybe cropping, and only ever to the original 3 to 2 ratio, for many years. Gradually, I learned more and more about how to tweak and prod my photos to get a better result. I went through a series of software changes from Nothing to Lightroom to Aperture, back to Lightroom and to Luminar 3 and 2018. Still, most of what I was doing was basic fixes to my photos. Only occasionally I would spend some more time. Luminar was great for pushing the envelope to get some punchy results that weren't strictly accurate. But it was Luminar's failing, constant course changes in the product roadmap while breaking promises, that led me to look at Photolab 3. That's when photography began changing for me. It started to become something I love. 
I reviewed Photolab 3 for the NoSilicast in January 2020, only a few months after I started using it. I won't rehash a full review here, as much of what I said then about version 3 still applies to version 5 that is on sale today, though there have, of course, been improvements. Photolab's secret source lies in their modules, which contain profiles for supported camera body and lens combinations that are built by measuring the actual equipment in DxO's labs. These mean you get the absolute best quality from your raw images, with corrections for vignetting, aberrations and distortions, and astonishing edge-to-edge sharpness. I raved in my review about the sharpness achieved and the remarkable prime noise reduction which works on the raw data itself. Next, I started hanging out in the DxO forums, learning more and more about Photolab's tools. As I learned more, I started caring more about finessing many of my photos. I realised that Photolab was able to get much higher quality photos from my camera, which in turn encouraged me to make them the best they could be with thoughtful processing. I was so impressed, I decided to revisit the photos I had taken in Singapore six months before I bought Photolab. Some of the nighttime shots in particular took on a whole new appearance when prime noise reduction was applied. Then something special began to happen. I began to fall in love with some of them. Photolab 4 introduced an astonishing leap forward from prime noise reduction with the machine learning powered Deep Prime. This had me revisiting some photos again to apply Deep Prime where it was warranted. Photos that Prime couldn't quite tame became candidates for being great. Photos that had been great had the possibility to become excellent. After I upgraded to Photolab 4, I really got the bug for going back to revisit old photos. I've reprocessed well over 2,000 photos going as far back as 2008. Even photos taken with my 2006 model camera are coming out looking fantastic, if the work I put in at the time was good enough. I haven't taken that many DSLR photos recently. 2021's total count was 134 published out of 772 taken, but I'm enjoying going back through my old photos and seeing what I can unearth. In addition to the over 2,000 I have reprocessed, quite a few previously unpublished photos are now seeing the light of day, and the occasional one of these really hits the spot for me too. Perhaps the most telling change is that I no longer use other people's images for my desktop wallpaper. At home, I have two screens and use four spaces across each. Every one of the eight screens has one of my photos on it. I get to see these photos every day, and I am not tiring of them because they delight me every time. Or, to put it more strongly, I love these photos. These photos made possible, yes, by my camera gear and some knowledge of how to use it, but made lovable by Photolab. I know for many people, phones are good enough to be their only camera, But if you want the feeling of truly creating an image to love, I recommend using a dedicated camera and Photolab. Photolab has unequivocally made me love my photography by getting the absolute best out of my equipment, which then makes me want to tease and prod my images into something truly great, something, maybe, to love. Before Photolab, I had never actually loved a photograph I had taken. I have been pleased, even proud of some, but I'd never loved them. Thanks for sharing that, Alistair. It's uh, interesting the different ways we all fall in love with photography. Um, unfortunately, the app that caused me to fall in love kind of doesn't exist anymore. That would be Apple's Aperture. I still miss that app. Anyway, moving on, 
I would like to make some podcast recommendations. So back in the before times, uh, when I used to guest host, I think I I think I've done it a few times. My memory says I've done it a few times. I basically share some of the podcasts I'm listening to um, because I listen to a lot of podcasts. Uh, before the pandemic, I listened to a lot, and that has not gotten any less now that, you know, now that we've been through these couple of years of uh, weirdness. So, uh, you know, none of my recommendations from the past have gone away. Well, the podcast may have died, but there's nothing I used to recommend that I don't recommend anymore. But there are a few shows that have, I won't, I won't call them new shows because they're not necessarily new. They're just new to me. Um, I was just flicking through, you know, which which shows when they show up in my feed make me the most excited that I haven't talked about before. And so I've picked just a handful because I don't want to bore you all. And this way you may actually you know, take me seriously if I don't make too many recommendations. And I've popped them into alphabetic order so as not to uh, prime people too much. So... Without further ado, the first one I want to talk to you about, and this is one Alistair, I, I'm guessing Alistair knows about, but if he doesn't, he might enjoy. It's called AvTalk, which is from the people who make the amazing iOS app, uh, Flight Radar 24. Actually, it's an Android app too. And it's pretty niche, right? It is the week's aviation news, but it's a fun conversational format and it's just once a week. And there's a nice, uh, you know, there's a nice rapport between the the panelists, and it's it, there's a nice balance of informality and formality. It's 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 SFW, but not stilted. You know, so you know sometimes a conversational podcast can go completely off the rails, but the, no, these guys are professional, but loose and chatty, and it's it's just a very fun show. And I don't really want to spend more than an hour a week keeping up to date on what's going on in the world of aviation, but I do kind of want to keep up with what's going on in the world of aviation. And this is just perfect. Basically, one hour every week, and I'm all caught up, and I, I really do enjoy listening to it. Um, it's just, it's fun to hear from the inside on these things, so definitely cool. Then the next one I want to recommend is called Cautionary Tales. It is from the wonderful British economist and broadcaster Tim Harford. I have recommended lots of Tim's work before either in previous Nocilla casts or in Security Bits and stuff. Just amazing work. Anyway, his current series where he's pouring his energies into is called Cautionary Tales. And he retells stories we think we know from history and lets us learn from them. And as a general... A, he's an excellent storyteller. And B, you probably think you know the lesson you're going to learn. Almost always, it has not been the lesson I thought. I was pretty sure I knew what the state of play was with the uh, Ford Pinto gas tank exploding. Now, Ford lawyers, immoral, total disaster, nothing more to learn here. Oh, no, 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 no. There's a lot more to the story than that. So, as I say, it's you, you might think you know the stories, but you don't. And even at the stories you've never heard of before, they are amazingly well told and not always happy. But it is always very, very insightful. And like I say, Tim knows how to tell a story. So cautionary tales. Third one then is Decoder. Now this this one is my favourite of all of the tech podcasts. Um, There are a lot of shows out there where you take a tech journalist and you have them sit down for a conversation with a tech leader of some kind. Kara Swisher has been the master of this format too. 
But Nilay Patel does Decoder for The Verge. And honestly, I have yet to come across another podcast that does that. Basically, this is the pinnacle of that genre. And no one else does this particular genre as well as Nilay does. So why is that special? Well, two things is, firstly, every show starts with Nilay setting it up for us giving us the context of the industry, the context of the company, and then the context of the person that he's going to be talking to. So, you know, this is someone who's involved in a company, which is involved in an industry. So what are all the moving pieces? What are the big dynamics? What are the big open questions of the moments? Really set the scene. And then any and all jargon that comes up naturally in the conversation is explained in this opening. And so... When Nilay then hands over to pass Nilay and into the conversation, when the jargon comes up, A, you don't miss the rest of the conversation because you're, you're trying to figure out what it is they mean. And B, Nilay doesn't have to interrupt the conversation to ask the guest to explain or whatever, because Nilay's already explained it up front. So the conversation can continue to flow. It's a fantastic, I mean, it must take an awful lot of work to do, but it's a fantastic way to have these kind of interview shows. And then the other thing is that one of Nilay's big focuses is actually on how leaders make decisions. So yes, it happens that he is a tech guy talking to tech people and the tech stuff is always fascinating, but you get a different point of view on the same scenarios because the focus is on how difficult decisions get made. And, you know, on the one hand, that, you know, how do you make decisions is kind of a, an opening question that helps get the conversation flowing, so you could argue it's a bit of a MacGuffin, but it really does actually colour the interview to the point where you get different, and I would say more interesting conversations on Decoder than you get in other similar podcasts. So, I've been a huge fan since he started the show, and so far I have never been disappointed. I've never wished I could have that time back. I listen to them all and I enjoy them all. So that's Decoder from The Verge, hosted by Nilay Patel. The next one, then, is Malicious Life. Um, This is the first security entry. In fact, I think it's the only security entry in the list. Um, This show is paid for or supported by an Israeli security firm called Cyber Reason, who are also the people who underwrite Darknet Diaries, which is a show I have plugged many times on Security Bits. And Darknet Diaries is is a more long-lived show than Cyber Reason. This is a newer show. Uh, but it's very obvious that uh, the host of um, Malicious Life, uh, Ran Levy, who has an amazing Israeli accent, by the way, some of the cutest mispronunciations you're ever going to come across. Um, it's quite obvious that Ran is inspired by Jack Resider, who does Darknet Diaries. But just because the same stable doesn't mean it's just another Darknet Diaries, because while they both cover security... And they both tell stories about things that have happened in the world of cybersecurity. They do so from a really different point of view. So Jack Resider tells stories from the point of view of a protagonist. It's a person's view of a major event. And it's got interviews. It, you know, it, it, is, it is a personal view of something we've seen in the news. Which is why it's so fascinating, because we've seen the headlines, and then we actually get the human beings behind it through Darknet Diaries. But Ran Levy is different, because Ran describes his show as a history of cybersecurity show, and so he tells the story from the story's point of view. 
So instead of it being piecemeal, headline now, another headline a few months later, it's the full story, you know, with a defined beginning, middle and end and all put into context. So it's it's the story fully told, but it's not from the point of view of a person, it's from the point of view of the story. So I sort of think of Jack Reeside as being like Anne Frank's diary, and I think of Malicious Life as being like Winston Churchill's History of World War II. They're both describing World War II, and yet they're both very, very different. Now, the other thing that Malicious Life has going for it is that the history shows are now, if you go back into the archives, it's all history. But nowadays, the show is broken into two distinct types of episodes. So the, the episodes that Ran hosts himself and that are you know, the primary episodes are the history ones, where there is a story of cybersecurity told, you know, beginning, middle, end. But those are interspersed with what uh, the show calls B-Sides episodes, which are actually hosted by one of the producers of the regular Mrs. Life podcast. And those are conversations with security professionals about a story that's happening right now. So, you know, as and when there's some sort of major vulnerability like Log4J or whatever, you can expect a B-Sides episode with someone who knows what the heck they're talking about explaining where Log4J fits into the bigger picture and, you know, how and why it matters. It's not really a technical detail. It's a lot more putting it into context and putting it into place. And again, that fits well with a history show. So anyway, Malicious Life uh, from Cyber Reason. Definitely a nice, you know, Darknet Diaries is still my favourite, but honestly, a very close second is Malicious Life. And I do really love Rand's Israeli um, accent. It's very enjoyable. Next up, a science show. This is probably, I don't know how I didn't discover this show until recently, but I, I honestly only came across it about six months ago, but I've been an avid fan ever since. It's from the people who do the Skeptics Guide at skepticsguide.org, and it's a podcast called The Skeptics Guide to the Universe. It is a weekly show with a panel always, and it uh, the main focus of the show is the science news of the week. And it puts it into context, and it also does a very good job of filtering out the hype from what actually matters. Because, I'm sorry to say, a lot of media coverage of science news really isn't great, right? But it's this show dives into that news, and it, it filters out the garbage and puts it into a broader concept, uh, context. And again... It's a it's a conversational show, right? It's a panel show, and it is very loose and very free. And so I often think of it as being a bunch of science geek friends who get together every week over dinner on a Friday, and they talk about the week's science news in that sort of informal, uh, fun way. A side effect of that very enjoyable format is that the show is long. This is a weekly two-hour show. Now, my answer to that is I use Overcast feature to cut out silences and I use Overcast feature to have per uh, per uh, podcast settings. And I have this podcast set to 1.25 speed, so one and a quarter speed. And that means I'm usually through it in about an hour and a half or so. And I actually really do thoroughly enjoy it, but I do speed it up a bit because otherwise it would be a very large commitment. So the new segments are the bulk of the show and they're definitely the bit of the show that I find them has the most value but those aren't the bits of the show that are the most fun because you know about three quarters of the way through or maybe two-thirds of the way through the show pivots from all newsy and facty and the odd interview and stuff into pure fun uh, the show basically always ends with some sciencey games 
Um, and the exact games will depend on who the hosts are that week, because basically each of the hosts have a different thing they do. And if the host who normally does Who's That Noisy is on, then Who's That Noisy segment will be there and so on and so forth. So anyway, there's a whole bunch of these different segments that come and go, but the three most common ones are the three I want to talk about because they're also my favourites. So the first one is Who's That Noisy? That is not a typo. It's not What's That Noisy? It's Who's That Noisy? There's a whole story behind it. It's cute. Um, Listeners submit recordings of interesting sounds, and then the panellists think about it for a bit, and then it's basically thrown over to the audience for the week. And then the next week, we get the answer to the previous week's noisy, and we get a new noisy to ponder on for the next week. And they are pretty much always absolutely fascinating. And I pretty much never guess them right. But they're still fascinating and fun. Now, my absolute favourite section, and it's there pretty much every week, is science or fiction. And this one is sort of a science workout. So there are three science news headlines, two real, one fake. And the panel have to reason their way to figuring out the fake. It is just such good practice at helping you critically look at headlines and filter out the garbage from the real stories, right? Is this plausible? Do those orders of magnitude add up? Do those words mean anything when put together in that way? I mean, I know they sound good, but is it technobabble or is it science? It is, it's a really good way to help you exercise the parts of your brain that you should really have on when reading science news from the mainstream media because there's a lot of very bad science news out there. And then finally, one that I just love because I love quotations, I've always been fascinated by them, is the quote quiz. There will be a collection of science-related quotations and it's kind of double fun because the quotations are usually fun in and of themselves, but the game is to guess who said them and it's usually, thankfully, multiple choice because I'll be honest uh, we used to have a maths teacher called it multiple guess exams, and that's kind of where I usually end up in this segment. But it's really good fun. I always enjoy the quotations. The, the guessing game is sort of secondary to the quotations. So anyway, Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, good science news, well put into context, and some fun games. And then the last one is also science It's called Unexplainable by the good me- folks over at Vox Media. It's excellent research, meticulously produced, half-hour shows, And the topic is something at the edge of our scientific understanding. It's something where we've basically, we know what we don't know, and we're trying to figure out how to learn more. That is where the real fun is in science. It's at that edge where we're just, we're bumping into the edges of our ignorance, and we're trying to push those boundaries away. Always a fascinating topic. And you know that if you come back in 10 years, the show will be out of date and useless because we'll have learned more because it's right on the edge. I say, unexplainable from the good folks over at Vox. So anyway, they're my uh, picks. Hopefully some of you uh, sign up and enjoy those too. When macOS Big Sur broke cover, We got a first look at the control centre as reimagined for the Mac. While its cousin, the new notification centre, has been much maligned, I feel like the control centre flies under the radar. Maybe that's because everyone is just getting on and using it, but I wonder whether some people don't realise just how much lies within. Represented by an icon that looks like two iOS-style switches, 
it sits second from the right in your menu bar next to the clock. On clicking the icon, you will see a collection of sub-panels and single controls. Let's take a look. Top left is a sub-panel with three entries. At first glance, these appear to allow you to turn on or off Wi-Fi, Bluetooth and AirDrop, but there's a little more to it than just a few switches. The Wi-Fi entry shows the name of the network you are connected to, if any. If you click on the circular icon, you can turn it on or off, but hover over the text and a small disclosure arrow appears. Clicking anywhere on the row that's not on the icon opens a more detailed Wi-Fi panel. There is now a dedicated switch at the top to turn it on or off, but also a list of available networks split into three sections. The top section shows personal hotspot devices, the next section displays known networks, and the third, collapsed by default, shows any other networks the Mac can see. You can join any of these networks simply by clicking on the name. Finally, at the bottom of the panel is a link to network preferences. Moving back to the main control center pane can be done by clicking on the title. The next entry is Bluetooth. There is no extra information shown, but again, clicking on the entry gives you a more detailed view. We have the dedicated on-off switch at the top, then a list of all your connected and known but disconnected devices. If supported by the device, each connected one shows you its battery level. Clicking on a device connects or disconnects it based on the current state. Finally, there is a link to Bluetooth preferences at the bottom. Below Bluetooth is AirDrop. This shows you if it is turned on, and if so, whether it is set to contacts only or everyone. Clicking on the row only gives you the option to turn it off or on, and to select one of those two modes if on. Next to that first sub-panel at the top right of Control Center is the focus control that shows the current focus mode. Clicking anywhere on this control shows you a detail panel where you can set Do Not Disturb permanently for one hour or until this evening. Below those options, you can pick from any of your defined focus modes. At the bottom is a link to focus preferences. Below the focus control is the keyboard brightness control. This does not display any information, but clicking it pops open a slider where you can set the brightness, and there is a link to keyboard preferences. Next to keyboard brightness is screen mirroring. This will either be grey like the other controls if you are not currently extending or mirroring to another device, or highlighted in white and blue if you are. You've probably guessed that clicking on the control gives you more. If it's not active, you see a list of devices to connect with, such as iPads and Apple TVs. Click on one of these to connect. If it's in use, the device you are connected to has additional options to set how it is being used either as an extension of your display area or mirroring one of your monitors. There is also an option to hide or display the sidebar that this mode offers. And finally, a link to display preferences. Moving down the main control center, we get to the first of the wide controls, display. This contains only a slider to set the brightness of your primary display. That's the one that has the menu bar. If you have an iPad or another Mac nearby, there will be a little screen icon to the right of the bar. If this is highlighted in blue, then that device is connected using universal control, meaning it is not acting as a display for your Mac, but your Mac's keyboard and mouse, or trackpad, can be used to control it. Clicking it when highlighted like this will disconnect that device. 
If you click above the slider, further options are presented. If you have multiple displays that support macOS's controls, which includes any built-in screens on laptops and iMacs, plus external screens such as an Apple Studio display or Pro Display XDR, then you will see sliders for all of them. Any universal control devices appear here and can be clicked to disconnect or connect. There are also buttons at the bottom for Dark Mode, Night Shift and True Tone, plus another link to display preferences. Finally, there is a third level to the display control. On supported displays, such as Studio Display or Pro Display XDR, click on the name of the display to see a list of reference modes that you can pick from to set the monitor's colour profile. Below the display control is the sound control, also full width. This contains a slider to set the volume of the current system output device and an airplay button. Click anywhere not on the slider to open a panel that lists all of your local sound devices plus any available airplay targets. Click any of these to select it for system output. There is also a link to sound preferences. The next control may not appear. It's called Now Playing. It has a thumbnail for the application currently playing audio, such as a YouTube thumbnail from Safari or album art from Apple Music. Next to that is a title and artist, and on the far right a play pause and next track button for music, or a play pause and skip back button for Safari. If you click on the thumbnail, it will take you to the app it represents. Clicking on either of the two buttons will take the indicated action, and clicking on the title takes you to a detail panel which shows a very small now playing pane with the same elements, plus a progress or scrubber bar, and both directions of skip. That is all of the panels and controls that will be present by default, but there are a few more you can turn on in System Preferences in the Dock and Menu Bar section. In the sidebar of this section under the heading Other Modules, you can choose to include Accessibility Shortcuts, Battery and Fast User Switching. Accessibility Shortcuts adds a control that gives access to a long list of vision and physical and motor shortcuts, such as voiceover, increased contrast, sticky keys, and head pointer. Battery adds a battery control that shows whether your laptop battery is charging and the current capacity. Clicking on it reveals apps using significant energy and a link to battery preferences. Fast user switching shows the avatars of users defined on the Mac with an indication of which are logged in. Clicking on an avatar will perform a fast user switch to that user, and there is also a link to go back to the login screen, and one to users and groups preferences. Looking forward to the new macOS Ventura coming later in 2022, there will be at least one new control for the new Stage Manager feature. There is very little customization available in Control Panel on macOS, other than the three extra controls you can turn on if desired. However, the set of functions available out of the box are comprehensive and, I think, all useful. The idea for this story came from discovering that I can set the reference mode for my new Apple Studio display without having to go into the System Preferences display section, which has become more complex in recent macOS releases. Now I am only ever three clicks away from choosing the display mode for editing my photos or general computing tasks. Alright, now the scary bit. Security bits all by my little old self.
Well, let's start with some feedback and follow-ups on some long-running stories we've been tracking for a while. Um, Russ's hostility towards Western companies uh, continues, unabated. Uh, Apple has joined the list of companies it's fined for uh, not storing Russian citizens' data in Russia. Uh, the rest of that list, inclu- or others on that list, include Twitch, Pinterest, Airbnb, UPS, and Google. So, uh, esteemed company Apple are joining. And in related news, it looks like the Competition Authority in Russia is also going to fine Apple for its App Store privacy policy violations. Um, we shall see how that pans out. Basically, I think Apple and all these companies are just going to have to leave Russia. They're going to have to do a McDonald's and sod off, I think, is going to be the outcome. But as I say, time shall tell. Uh, last time, myself and Alison talked about some not-so-positive reactions from US lawmakers to the repealing, not the repealing, the overturning of the Roe v. Wade Supreme Court decision. Uh, they wanted to basically break the IDFA in a wrong-headed attempt at fixing privacy on phones. I'm happy to say they've had a rethink on how to reply, and they've come up with a much, 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 much more positive response to the whole issue, which is uh, a call for the Federal Trade Commission to regulate VPN companies, because if privacy is important to you, then a good VPN is important to you, and not being ripped off by your VPN provider is extremely important to you. So... That is a positive response to an icky situation. Speaking of icky situations, we have uh, discovered more about Pegasus's illustrious career. Uh, Pegasus is the NSO Group's spyware. And we now know that back in 2000 and 2001, 30 pro-democracy protesters in Thailand were successfully hacked with Pegasus. Uh, yeah, finally here, actually. Uh, I'm always terrible at counting on bullet points. But finally, uh, security researchers are continuing to focus their attention on air tags, And they have found a way by uh, voltage glitching, is what it's called. So basically by sending some spurious voltages at the device, they can cause a little current to go in the wrong place deep inside the chip. Anyway, it, it sort of trips on the debugging port, which then allows that port to be used or that interface rather than port, I guess, to be used to install custom firmware onto the device, which means you can change what it does. So you can do things like disabling the warning beeps that the device makes if it's been following you around for a while. And you can even clone the device so that you have two air tags that are the same air tag, which is interesting. So, you know, you might be tempted to think, oh my God, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. This means anyone can track anyone. Well, yeah. But it has nothing to do with this hack, because it's far, far, far easier to just go and buy a, you know, a stealthy tracker on Amazon. They've existed for years. They will always continue to exist. There's nothing Apple can do to stop everyone else in the, or many other people in the world making entirely stealthy trackers. Apple's just, unless you go out of your way, Apple's do their best to warn you that they're being abused. No one else's do, or almost no one else's do. So, you know, yes... This is to be expected. No, the sky is not falling. It is still way, way easier for a malicious person to just go around Apple than to do this. Not that that makes me happy, but anyway, just putting it into context. We do not have any deep dives this time around, uh, so let us jump to action alerts. The 12th of July was Patch Tuesday, and Microsoft patched 86 vulnerabilities, which included a... uh, bug in all versions of Windows which was being actively exploited, i.e. a zero day. 
and uh, Adobe also tend to tag along with Apple on the same patch Tuesday. So they released patches for Acrobat, Reader, Photoshop, and a bunch of other products I've never heard of. Apple didn't join in on Patch Tuesday. They came along on the 20th, but they basically patched everything. Um, iOS 15.6, iPadOS 15.6, macOS 12.5, Monterey, watchOS 8.7, tvOS 15.6, and HomePod software 15.6. That was then followed two days later by patches to the older operating systems, i.e. macOS Big Sur 11.6.8 and Security Update 2022.005 for Catalina and the standalone Safari 15.6 for both of those legacy OSs. So if you're living in Apple land, patchy, patchy, patch, patch. And indeed, if you're in Windows or or Adobe land as well, patchy, patchy, patch, patch all round. Now, there were two related stories to the Apple patches that caught my eye. So Naked Security and a bunch of others are calling Apple out for being slow to patch a zero day in Safari, which was patched two weeks ago by Chrome and by Edge. And two weeks ago, it was a zero day, according to Microsoft and to Google. And yet Apple didn't get a patch out until two weeks after that. Now, there are extremely little details to go on. So it's possible that while the bug existed, it wasn't actually exploitable in the same way. So it may not have been a zero day on Apple devices. But it's it's just a poor show. That you know, if you if you if you share a code base with another open source project, and indeed Apple are keeping an open source version of the you know, the guts of Safari WebKit, it's just it's a poor show to not keep up with these kind of updates. We used to get this a lot um, in the open source parts of the core macOS itself over the years, and Apple have gotten much better about that. But yeah, a bit of a slip here. So I'm hoping this is an aberration and that this isn't some sort of new normal. We shall see. But I want to end on a slightly happier news. Uh, iOS 15.6 came with a new toggle for people in the United States. So a while ago, Apple added a toggle where you could opt in or opt out of, uh, I think they're called safety alerts, but they're better known as amber alerts. And there was a bit of an issue discovered that while you could indeed toggle off amber alerts, uh, when a test alert is sent, the test that the amber alert system is working, that actually comes through as a different kind of a thing and those test alerts were getting through even on devices with Amber Alerts turned off. And as I understand it, the actual noise made by these alerts is pretty ear-piercing and horrible. And so people were quite cranky when the test alerts got through, even though they turned off the Amber Alerts. So anyway, bottom line, Apple have added a second toggle so you can turn off the tests as well as the Amber Alerts themselves. So that is only a good thing. Moving on to Worthy Warnings. Just the one, but it's a doozy. So back in January, there was an exploit discovered in the Android version of Twitter, and that exploit could be used to one by one harvest the phone numbers and email addresses associated with Twitter accounts. So it wasn't possible to just get everything all in one go, but attackers could start to siphon this data out of Twitter and starting to build up databases of Twitter usernames to phone numbers and email addresses. and. Twitter were told about the problem, Twitter patched the problem, so that stopped more numbers leaking out, but we didn't know how many had been leaked. And we still don't know how many there have been. However, we do know that there have been at least four and a half million such records leaked, 
because there's four and a half million of them on sale on the dark web for 33 grand. I think. 30 something grand anyway. There is no way to search the database to check if you're on it. Well, I guess you could spend 30 grand. I'm not going to do that. Um, So at the moment, I'm afraid to say anyone like me who has a Twitter account, we are all potentially in that 4.5 million collection. Which means that an attacker could very easily target us with so-called spear phishing because they can construct a tweet that knows both our user, not just both, that knows all three of our username, our email address and our phone number. So with those three pieces of information, you could very easily make an email that is believably from Twitter asking us to do something. And if we're not careful about checking the URL, we could very quickly find ourselves fished or in some other way in trouble. So all of us on Twitter beware there is a non-zero chance that our email address and phone number has been and the matching Twitter account have been leaked in this 4.5 million record database. Moving on then to notable news. I'm going to stay in sad mode. Uh, The first story is Facebook being Facebook. So you may have noticed over the years that URLs have these little question marks and then they have like, you know, some sort of name equals some sort of value. And a lot of companies have meaningful, intelligibly meaningful uh, parameters. They're called URL parameters. And up until now, Facebook have had a specific parameter they use to attach tracking IDs to URLs. So that if you ask you know, Facebook for a URL so you can share a post, then that URL will contain a tracking ID. And that tracking ID would have been in the form of question mark I can't remember what it is, FBI, I think it was FBID was the name of the field, so Facebook ID equals and then the unique tracking ID. And it was possible to recognize the Facebook tracking ID and remove it from the URL. And that way you could share the URL without sharing the tracking. And a lot of browsers were getting wise to this. Brave, I think, was the first to do it. Firefox followed suit and others were heading that way too. So they're just going to start stripping these known tracking IDs, not just from Facebook, from all sorts of companies that use them. There's you know, Google have tracking IDs, Microsoft have tracking IDs, tracking IDs all over the place. And they, they tend to use well-known uh, tag or tags, attributes like FBID, and so they can be stripped out. Well, Facebook have decided enough of that. We shall have no more of this. Um, we shall, in fact, change our URL scheme. So it is a part of the spec that a URL can be anything. It, after the domain name, the bit of the URL after that only has to have meaning to the receiving website. So instead of having obvious, meaningful IDs, Facebook are replacing their URLs with a new URL scheme that is basically an encrypted blob of garbage. And only Facebook will be able to decrypt the blob of garbage and extract the relevant information So it becomes impossible to both link someone to the thing you want to share and remove the tracking cookie. You either end up with a link that just goes to the Facebook homepage or you end up with a link that goes to the thing you want to link to with tracking in place and there is no way to separate those two things out anymore. This is the inevitable next step in the cat and mouse game. They're not doing anything against the rules of the internet. They're Facebook being Facebook. And you should always assume that Facebook will be Facebook because they've set their business model up so that they are utterly, utterly incentivized to track you every which way they can. Well, of course they will. The only solution is to do what I've done and sod off. Okay, so 
And let's uh, have your hat back on for the remaining two stories here under Notable News. Uh, first to Microsoft. So earlier this year, February, I believe, Microsoft announced that they would be rolling out a change where Office Visual Basic for Applications, VBA macros, would be disabled by default on any document downloaded from the web. And this made the entire security industry excruciatingly happy. And Microsoft gave lots and lots of notice so that people would know the change was coming. The change came, and a whole bunch of companies that were doing things poorly all of a sudden had their stuff break. And they went bananas. And they did lots of shouting at Microsoft. And so had we recorded this show a week ago, I would have been saying, and Microsoft have rolled back their change. Well, they did roll back, but in their rollback message, they said that this was a temporary rollback and it will be rolled forward again. Well, it turns out it was rolled forward very quickly. They basically updated their readmes and their how-tos so that it would be easier for companies to do the right thing and then pushed ahead. And so the rollback has been unrolled back, or I guess rolled forward. Uh, So that much, much, much anticipated change is indeed going ahead. So thank you, Microsoft. And uh, still very strongly in the good news column, we have uh, Google. They have uh, taken their Chrome OS Flex out of beta and with the first stable release. This is a version of Chrome OS designed to run on old hardware that's not from Google. The idea is that all of those old PCs you have that can't run a supported version of Windows or those old Macs that can't run a supported version of Mac OS, well, you can stick Chrome OS Flex on it and have a security-safe device. But of course, remember, it's Google, so privacy, etc., etc. You're making an informed decision to opt into Google's spying on you everywhere. But anyway, the point being, you can have a safe way a safe from security vulnerabilities and malware way of using old hardware, thanks to Chrome OS Flex. Well, a good news story, but you know, I'm a little bit ambivalent about it, actually, because you couldn't pay me to run the Google OS. But it will, it will make a lot of people very happy. And if you're in the Google ecosystem, if you have Gmail, if you have Google Calendar, if you use these things, then there is no extra danger in using Chrome OS Flex because you've already given them everything. So you may as well use Chrome OS Flex and save yourself from security vulnerabilities because you've already given away your privacy. Okay, top tips. It is vacation season, as we all know, because our esteemed host is in Iceland. I was going to say sunning herself, but that's not true because it's not really that kind of a place, Iceland. Um, But having a lot of geographic, geographically, geothermally interesting stuff, lots of fascinating uh, geology and geography in the photographs I'm getting. Anyway, it is summer vacation time. And Nake Security have a very excellent post to bookmark for yourself and or your loved ones. Seven cybersecurity tips for your summer vacation. None of them are chattering, but it's just a nice little, tick, you know, a seven-part little thing to remind yourself what you should and shouldn't do, and especially to share with others in your family. We have no excellent explainers, which jumps us on to interesting insights, and this one is, right, it's suggested reading, not recommended reading. So we have talked a few times about a new approach that is proving successful, unfortunately, where you end up with these long, slow cons built around, it starts off basically as a romance scam, but the payoff at the end of the scam is that you get tricked into going into bogus crypto stuff, and you basically end up losing all of your money in cryptocurrency cons, basically. And 
these things don't happen over hours. They happen over weeks and they spread you along and they slowly drop crypto things into conversation. It's all done very carefully, very subtly. And what I hadn't realized until I read this article from Brian Krebs is that this is being done at an industrial scale. There is forced labor in data centers in uh, Myanmar being forced to pull off these scams on people. So it's just victims all around. The people defrauding the people are themselves victims of cybercrime. And the people being defrauded are obviously victims of cybercrime. And US law enforcement is seeing huge amounts of this. And it's succeeding in getting at people who are very experienced computer users. This is not something that only idiots get caught up in. This is this is good in the worst possible way. So be alert. Be on the watch. This is a thing. What I didn't know is that this thing has a name. So I now know that the jargon for these horrible, horrible long-run romance scams is pig butchering. So uh, we have Massive Losses Define Epidemic of Pig Butchering is the name of the article from Brian Krebs. It's horrific reading from start to finish. But I certainly felt I needed to know this so that I can understand what's going on in the cybercrime world. And if you have loved ones who use the internet, you should probably know too, as horrible as it is. Right, palate cleansing time. Oh boy, needed. Uh, Alison is possibly even more excited than me about the launch of the JWST. Uh, the success, oh, sorry, not the launch, that was ages ago, right? And not the successful arrival at L2, which was also ages ago. But the Space Telescope is now up and running. And it is sending us pictures. Or rather, data. Let's be honest, it's a science instrument, it's data. And the images are stunning. So I have four links to astronomy pictures of the day from recent weeks featuring uh, JWST-based images. They are amazing, and what's cool is the science is only getting started. We have so much to learn from this telescope. It's going to be amazing. And just because it's fun, XKCD chose to chime in, so link in the show notes to an XKCD installment about the wonderful JWST, and I won't spoil it for you. Click the link in the show notes. Well, I am going to uh, draw a line under my solo security bit segment here. So uh, until next time, folks, remember to stay patched so you stay secure. Okay, well, that is going to wind things up for this week. Alison will be back next week. Uh, until then, you can find me at bartb.ie. You can find my podcast at let's-talk.ie. And you can email Alison anytime you like at alison at hotfeet.com. If you have any questions or suggestions, just send them on over. You can follow Alistair on Twitter at, at Podfeet. If you want to join the conversation, you can join the wonderful Slack community at podfeet.com forward slash Slack, where you can find me and Alistair and Alison and lots and lots of cool people. And then a silly castaways rock. And remember, everything good starts with podfeet.com. You can support the show at podfeet.com forward slash Patreon or with a one-time donation at podfeet.com forward slash PayPal. If you want to join the fun of the live show, give a little bit more waiting to do. Nearly there. Uh, next weekend, July 31st, when Alison and Steve are back, there will be a live show again. 
Uh, when that happens, you can head over to podbeat.com forward slash live on Sunday nights, 5pm Pacific time, and join the friendly and enthusiastic Massive Castaways. Thanks for listening, and stay subscribed.